I'm Amber Duke. I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Inez Stepman. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So today, the day after the Iowa caucuses, that's obviously the biggest news. Amber will be talking about uh, Trump's large victory. Um, ben will be talking about this narrative that's be floating around that Trump's going to be the dictator in chief. Um, I'll be actually talking on a completely different note, the uh, Houthis and their attacks on global trade routes, and most recently, the loss of two Navy SEALs um, in the fight against the Houthis. And finally, uh, Inez will be discussing how the right should be thinking about Martin Luther King the day after Martin Luther King Day. So, Amber, let's talk the caucuses. Absolutely. Sort of the obvious topic to kick off with, I think. But um, the former president did indeed win Iowa, the first state in the GOP primary, by a substantial margin, 30 percentage points. It's a historic win in the Iowa caucus and a little bit of a comeback, I suppose, for the former president as he actually lost Iowa his first time around in 2016 to Ted Cruz, although he claimed it was stolen at the time. Um, but this is a pretty consistent victory with what we've been seeing in polls over the past couple of months. We saw Trump really running away with it, especially after the four indictments were handed down. And uh, we saw that Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis came pretty close to tying for second place. DeSantis ended up edging her out by just a couple of percentage points. Um, there was some consternation over the fact that the media called the race so quickly. The Associated Press made the call at just about 8.30 p.m., which was only 30 minutes after the doors opened for these caucuses. And the DeSantis campaign was alleging election interference. And uh, whatever you think about that, I, I don't think that uh, the media calling it earlier or later would have changed the 20,000 or 23,000 votes that ended up being the difference between number one and number two. Um, there was some interesting analysis though from the Iowa caucuses outside of just who the, the winning candidate was. Fox News ran a voter analysis of thousands of uh, GOP Iowa caucus goers, and they found that one of the most important qualities in a candidate for them is someone who is a strong leader. And CNN uh, similarly found that the vast majority of Iowa caucus goers want to make America great again. Um, so it was unlikely that uh, the sort of narrative around the idea that people wanted Trumpism without Trump was going to pan out, at least in Iowa. And another interesting poll I found out of this Fox News voter analysis was the percentage of these GOP voters who would defect from the party and choose not to vote in the general election based on who the nominee is. And it actually turns out that more people would not vote for Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis than would not vote for Donald Trump in the general. It was about 30% for Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis who say they would not ultimately vote for the GOP candidate and about 21% for Donald Trump. So that also throws a wrench into the calculus of picking up moderate or Democrat uh, voters at the expense of the Republican base, uh, which has kind of been the calling card for especially the Nikki Haley campaign. The idea that she would be able to make up for the loss in Trump voters by pulling in moderates and independents. And with such a sizable gap in Republican defections, at least in these, these Iowa voters, 
there's a, a significant question being raised, I think, about um, whether or not she could make up that deficit just by pulling in people from the middle of the aisle. Now, of course, looking ahead to New Hampshire, we see that Ron DeSantis, I think, is all but out of it at this point. He has been declining in the polls in New Hampshire for quite some time. It's really Nikki Haley's game to lose in New Hampshire, it seems. I mean, Trump is still polling well ahead of her, but she's pretty much banking her entire campaign on winning New Hampshire, as DeSantis was winning in Iowa. Uh, New Hampshire has open primaries, so she can take advantage of independents and Democrats there in a way that the other candidates maybe can't. Um, but I think New Hampshire will probably be the nail in the coffin for all of the Trump challengers. This blowout victory kind of said it all, as did the words from the New Hampshire governor, Chris Sununu, who, when asked if he would vote for Trump in the general, if Nikki Haley ends up losing, he said yes. And when asked if he would vote for him, even if he were a convicted felon, he also said yes. Um, so it seems clear, I think, that Republican voters are not interested in leaving Trump at this time. They're not interested in moving on. They still view him as leader of the party. And that's in spite of or because of all of the challenges against him from the Justice Department, from the media, and from other aspects of the establishment. So I'll go ahead and kick it out to the group from there. Yeah, I mean, look, until Iowa, I think there was always the chance that, you know, something is wrong with the polling, that it's not reflecting something, right? But even though every single poll was consistently showing Donald Trump with a huge and commanding lead in the field, there was this sort of quasi-primary where everybody was debating and Trump wasn't there. And um, <clears throat> and that was all, you know, fun and games and interesting, I suppose. But it's pretty clear to me that the primary is over now. Um you know, so I think in order to change the trajectory, Ron DeSantis would have had to win Iowa. He wouldn't have had to have a strong showing. He would have had to win it. Um, that would have shown that that Trump was vulnerable. Um, it was his best shot to take a state. He he banked a lot on it. And not only did he lose, he, he like he both um, DeSantis and Haley are like way. Even if you add, I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Amber, but. I think if you add together their shares of the vote, they still wouldn't have knocked out Trump together, right? You're, you're talking about a massive blowout in the state that he staked his campaign on. Look, I I frankly, to put my cards on the table, I would have happily voted for Ron DeSantis. I liked Ron DeSantis. I think he had the best agenda. I think he showed um, very well in Florida what it means to institutionally fight the left. I think he had enormous success in doing that. That being said, I mean, how many times are the people like us, the, you know, sort of conservative Nat Cotney chattering class is going to have to learn that our views are not reflective of the the Republican base. Um, and once again, they are not reflective of the Republican base. So, uh, I mean, I think this is this is basically over. I don't think that Nikki Haley is going to come any cl anything close to catching Trump in New Hampshire, um, which is fortunate because I think, you know, it, given a choice between Trump and Nikki Haley, I'm just like, prefer Trump. But um, but but yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's sad to say, but I I think the uh, the primaries are essentially over at this point. Um, one thing that is interesting about sort of the what have beens, I really think this primary and the the consistent polling with the huge gap started opening up the second that Trump got charged by the legal system. Um, and I, I think that's it's probably true. I think we probably would have had. I mean, probably Trump would have won anyway. But I. I think we would have been able to have a more competitive primary if 
the left had not decided to do something so which we talk about all the time on this podcast so blatantly tyrannical as to try to basically say no you cannot vote for donald trump we are going to try to exclude him from the political process via lawfare via charging him with a bunch of things like and now be it stripping him off the ballot in some of the states i think that just um solidified trump's support it, it gives him the strongest argument his his strongest argument to the american voter has always been they're coming for me because they hate you and i'm standing in the way and every action of the i don't even want to say the left anymore but like the regime the establishment um the current regime in this country has proven that argument correct over and over and over again so in that sense it is i think unsurprising that donald trump has notched his first and likely uh final uh sort of victory that he needs to secure the republican nomination Thought it was also notable that on the eve of the caucuses, uh, you had Mike Lee and Marco Rubio both endorse President Trump and former President Trump. And you know, part of this gets to the question of at what point does the party wholly coalesce? And I think we're likely just about there and train all of its fire and resources on beating Democrats in 2024, starting with the top of the ticket. You know, I've always wondered what was the theory of the case for those polling way behind Trump. And I still continue to wonder, will the establishment types, I guess, plus Democrats and independents to some extent, continue to burn millions of dollars on Nikki Haley in perpetuity? Um, I guess probably the consensus here is likely not. And, you know, maybe after New Hampshire or South Carolina, the plug is pulled there. But I do wonder, you know, what is the theory of the case? What is the black swan event that those who have devoted themselves to this primary think is going to happen that's going to change the trajectory? Does anyone think that there's really going to be uh, some sort of chicanery at the RNC to try and steal a race? If there's one conviction or several convictions, is that going to cause there to be a mass exodus? Uh, I've always, I've long wondered what the theory of the case is, and I, and I just don't see it at this point. And I think uh, what happened in Iowa last night vindicates the thesis that there is no black swan event. There is no change of trajectory coming. Um, we're in for a battle royale again in 2024. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a former employee of the DeSantis campaign, so I'll refrain from from speaking on the horse race uh, in order in, out of respect for my former colleagues and, and the candidate I supported. Um, and work for. Uh, that said, uh, I, you know, th there was a real problem with the fact that the media called it so quickly. I agree, it probably wouldn't have done much to change the result, but there were tons of people who hadn't voted by the time the media called it. I mean, they, they called it as soon as the doors closed at the caucus, but there's time in between there that it takes to actually get people to vote. So uh, hopefully the media learns that lesson for and, and doesn't make the same mistake in a future election where the, the results are a little bit closer. Okay, so transitioning. Um, Ben is going to talk about the Trump, the dictator in chief, that, that narrative. So, yeah, and specifically, uh, there was an article out which reads, I read it as part of a larger kind of information operation that's been unfolding. This one in NBC News, uh, several days before the Iowa caucuses, where the headline was Fears grow that Trump will use the military in quote unquote dictatorial ways if he returns to the White House. And this follows 
uh, in a, a long litany of pieces in the genre of fear-mongering over Trump the dictator. Uh, first, there was sort of the, he's going to dismantle the administrative state and gut the civil service, God forbid, and consequently all hell will break loose. Uh, and of course, the legislative branch has tried to take steps to prevent that. And this regard is regarding the military, obviously the other area where the president has control and where the power that he delegates is supposed to be respected, not subverted. First point that I would make here is the focus on the military of this NBC News piece uh, is very notable because if they're saying that Trump is going to politicize or weaponize it, that means it's already been politicized or weaponized against him previously, and they're planning on doing so again. So that's the first important point I think worth making with regard to the uh, military fever dreams in place here. Just to quote a little bit from this article, bracing for Trump's potential return, a loose-knit network of public interest groups and lawmakers is quietly devising plans to try to foil any efforts to expand presidential power, this from the left, which could include pressuring the military to cater to his political needs. And a, a military, by the way, of course, that has been woken starting underneath, underneath the Obama administration and led us to the perilous place that Will is going to talk about momentarily. The article continues, preparing to take legal action that this loose-knit coalition is preparing to take legal action and send letters to Trump appointees spelling out consequences they'd face if they undermine constitutional norms. So what that means is if they serve the president, they should be expected to face being broken and bankrupted under the legal system. And this is meant to cast a chill over anyone who would dare want to serve basically in the national security apparatus under Trump, who actually might share any of the same views as he does. Let's note, of course, that under the first Trump administration, there was plenty of subversion from the national security apparatus. Uh, of course, General Milley, most famously here as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, having back channel conversations with China and that it was going to tip them off, essentially, if there was a coming attack. There were also rumors about shell games, quote unquote, played with troops in the Middle East when Trump called for the military to remove troops from certain uh, hotbed regions uh, of the Middle East. And it seems that there was subversion and subterfuge about moving troops out of areas he wanted troops removed from. And a whole litany of other, of course, instances of subversion and sabotage by the president's subordinates. Basically, of course, because the regime believes that it is the highest power and that the commander in chief has to bend to its will to the extent the commander in chief doesn't agree with them. And maybe even if the commander in chief does agree with them, still the fourth branch of government reigns. So obviously there's a ton of projection that's baked into this article. Um, I, but I think it's worth noting though, first of all, they raised the Insurrection Act as something Trump could use. Uh, laughably, they talk about him raising it potentially if midterm election results don't go the way uh, he doesn't want it. Or if there's street action taken, of course, by leftist cohorts, a la the summer of love 2020. Uh, so I guess one of the questions that I have in reading this is, you know, beyond obviously the hysterics of the Trump derangement syndrome deranged, you know, what is the point of putting this out now? Is this supposed to scare uh, the sort of undecided, I guess, presumably independent voter that people think might shift the election one way or the other? Is it about scaring people who might serve under a Trump administration into not serving under him? What are they trying to telegraph here beyond, obviously, 
that there is going to be essentially a conspiracy to try to subvert the national security apparatus and any kind of military that would not be a woke military and that would actually follow the kind of anti-globalist nationalist agenda that I think a Trump administration would follow and that I would argue served us quite well. Uh, foreign policy was under the first four years of Trump. What is the point of the continued fear mongering here? Does it move anyone? Is it just about chilling the opposition or is there something more afoot? Because to me, this sort of reads like the Time magazine infamous conspiracy to save the 2020 election article where the cohorts involved told Molly Ball all about the different machinations that they used to try to, quote unquote, fortify the 2020 election. Now they're kind of laying out the plans in advance. And I guess they did to some extent, too, about what they would do to win the 2020 election. But they're seeming to lay out in advance kind of all the areas where they're going to try to subvert from before day one, as happened after 2016, a 2024 Trump administration. So what is the point of this kind of to what end the fear mongering pieces about the dictatorship generally and then when it comes to the military in particular? And I see the military, by the way, as hugely important for the regime to take over and have control of because it's such a respected institution and such a vital institution. And this is sort of trying to argue that there should actually be no civilian control of the military by way of a president. So anyway, with that, open your thoughts. All right, I'll go. Um, I think that it's very telling that this is just yet another way that Democrats and the establishment want to use undemocratic means in their struggle to protect democracy, right? This is, I mean, this is actually the theme of the last year. Uh, the idea of a massive lawfare campaign against the president where, or the former president rather, where he's facing four criminal indictments in four different jurisdictions filed in a little less than four months. And now we have kind of a reiteration of the, the talk that we heard at the end of the last Trump presidency which was, you know, General Milley talking with people in China and elsewhere uh, about how he's going to circumvent the uh, orders of his direct constitutional superior, namely the president. Um, these people need to get it together. Uh, this this sort of talk is absolute nonsense. Um, it's anti-democratic in, in the extraordinarily profound way uh, in this country. Uh, the commander in chief controls the military and the military doesn't control itself. Um, and if they really want to keep going along these lines, we should call their um, attempts to do this what it is. It's a junta. Uh, they would propose a military junta in this country, uh, one that ignores the and subverts the democratic will uh, manifested by our voters. So in, in the event that Donald Trump becomes president, I, I, I oppose a military junta in the United States of America. I think that that should be a very basic question. You know, for all this talk about how every candidate is asked about the character um, every Democrat should be immediately asked, do you, do you support the idea of a military junta taking control of this country in the event Donald Trump is president? Um, and then put an end to this absolutely irresponsible and un-American talk that we're hearing from the Democrats. Um, I guess I think that's that's sort of optimistic. Um, well, a lot of this is projection, as you pointed out, Ben. It's it's funny, especially the the WAPO article um, about a month ago, right? It was just literally a laundry list of things that the left has done uh, to the right in this country for the last 10, 20, or even 30 years, listed as potential horrifying dictatorship moves that Donald Trump might take uh, while in office. Um, look, this is, this is a very dangerous situation in which we find ourselves. A lot of very powerful people uh, in, in our government and outside of it may go to jail if Donald Trump wins and vice versa, right? Um, so 
that that's exactly i mean we've been talking about this again i, I mean i i feel like we do rubicon talk every every episode and it, to some extent there's there's not much we can do so it it, it uh, is sort of pointless to rehash but um that's why all of this is incredibly dangerous right um because the the sort of clash of power that never should have happened in forget about a constitutional republic even in a basic democracy the clash of power uh, that characterized Donald Trump's four years in office between the president and the unelected bureaucracy uh, that he calls the deep state right um that clash never should have happened that entire executive branch is supposed it exists to do the bidding of the president who is the only one who's responsible to the American people in elections, right? That entire branch is supposed to do his bidding. It very clearly didn't. It has a life of its own. Um, it has political opinions of its own, and it never stands for election, right? And and this is not a, a new state of affairs. In some ways, it's the culmination of, of uh, a century of, of handing power to unelected bureaucrats and creating this fourth branch of government. Uh, but I think under the Trump administration, it finally became completely clear that these are the people who believe they have the right to run the country. They believe that their, their political judgments about what is good or bad policy, who's a good or bad president, should be substituted for that of the voters. Um, and they're very they're sort of very open under the Trump presidency about that fact, um, up to the most basic things, like the things that Ben, were, ben was pointing to, like, hmm, should generals... Uh, inform the president when they're speaking to their high-level counterparts in our primary geopolitical foe uh, country, right, in China. Civilian control over the military. Uh, th these are like extremely basic small-D democratic norms. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think buckle up. 2024 is, is going to be incredibly wild. These people cannot allow Donald Trump to take power again because a lot of them are going to go to jail. I don't know what is going to happen as a result for that. Maybe they've played all the cards they have to play already. Um, but that being said, you can expect it to be very volatile. You can expect, uh, you know, I, I, I do think you can expect violence and low-level street violence um, in, in the run-up and then the aftermath of the election. I mean, this is not going to be... This is not going to be an ordinary American election. We haven't had one of those for quite some time, but this one especially, I think, is not going to be an ordinary American election. So uh, buckle up. I'll go ahead and attack maybe the political messaging aspect of this. Um, back in 2015, the regaling theory was that Trump was going to usher in World War III because of his recklessness with his rhetoric and his approach to foreign policy. Now, under the Biden administration, we are uh, sort of tacitly involved in two wars. We have escalating tensions with Iran and with the Houthi rebels, with their missile launches in the, in the Red Sea, their drones and uh, the subsequent drone strikes. Um, so I think that that narrative was so thoroughly and handily disproved that the only um, way that they could sort of get Trump on the military was to accuse him of um, potentially politicizing it. So from a messaging standpoint, I think that's what they're doing. Move on to my topic today, which is the Houthis and some of the very sad news that just came out of uh, the Middle East. Um, I think today we've we've got the news that two U.S. Navy SEALs who were um, trying to board a ship carrying Iranian military supplies there, they were lost at sea. Um, this follows, you know, continued Houthi attacks, including Houthi direct attacks on ships that are bound to the Israeli flag, because, of course, that was their original sort of, quote unquote, Cassis belly. But now they're going after American ships as well. Um, and we have a, a straight up pirate organization attacking us in the Red Sea. 
and seems like we're not really doing very much about it. I mean, we, I guess we launched some strikes, but apparently the Houthis are completely undeterred and they're continuing to attack and they're continuing to get military weapons. So um, this is a, a really dramatic failure of American leadership. It's a really dramatic failure of Biden. I think he's been he's been flagged first for most notably for taking the Houthis off the foreign terrorist list. And I read the justification for that. Apparently, that you know that hindered the entrance of humanitarian aid in there. Um, but I think the real big problem with what Biden and the Biden team's approach was, was they decided to stop sort of supporting the Saudi war in Yemen and the Saudi effort to remove the Houthis from power. Um, and it's how much, a lot of good that to this, right? I mean, you think about it diplomatically, what did we do? Um, we decided to, you know, force the Houthis primary antagonists to close up shop and stop supporting their attempt to remove them. And what are the Houthis? Well, they've gone to war with us. That, that, that's our, that's our gratitude for having, uh, you know, relieve the pressure on their own civil war. So I think, you know, it's a clear indication of what was very different between, um, you know, the Biden, what's different between the Biden administration and the foreign, former Trump administration's foreign policy. And the Trump administration's policy was just better. It was actually support. And in particular, in the Middle East, we did a much better job of supporting our actual allies, right? Saudi Arabia has been a long-term ally of the United States. And, you know, they're not the nicest regime, but so are many of our long-term allies aren't necessarily the nicest regimes in the world, but they're better than the people who are declared adversaries like Iran and the Houthis. And maybe, just maybe, it's not a good idea to try and appease people who are our long-term adversaries uh, in terms of, in terms of the Houthis. And uh, it's, it would be really nice if, you know, maybe our foreign policy switched back. So, um, I don't know what you guys all have to say about the Houthis, but I mean, I think I've seen, I've talked about this on the podcast before. It's, I think it's definitely time that we uh, have, take this seriously and inflict real, you know, we need to actually reestablish deterrence here. Our ships are getting attacked in the open ocean. This isn't 1776. We shouldn't be dealing. We're a much more powerful nation than we were then. We should be much harsher with this new version of the Barbary Pirates. Yeah, I think that's right. And I've found myself getting kind of frustrated um, with, some progressives that I've been talking to on this subject because they uh, take uh, non-interventionism to its extreme. And so they have been sort of pushing at the new right, like, well, you guys can't support um, launching counterattacks against the Houthis, especially not without constitutional, you know, congressional approval, because we are supposed to stay out of, of these conflicts and not be the world's policeman. And it's uh, such a uh, obvious logical um just it's just inane because these uh rebel pirates are attempting to board multiple ships they're attacking trade routes i mean one of the first things our military did in its existence was to protect trade routes part of the reason why it was created um and now we have um of course an escalation where we actually have apparently missing uh missing soldiers or missing uh, naval officers, which is a huge problem. Um, so I completely agree. Um, just because you don't want to get involved in proxy wars or fund unwinnable wars does not mean that you should not defend America and its interest um, when necessary. And I don't think those two things um, are uh, have to avoid coexisting. Go for it, Inez. <laughs> yeah, there was a Mexican standoff between me and Ben. Um, yeah, I mean, really, basically, uh, 
you have to be able to tell, and this is this is funny, this this phrase is used more domestically than it is foreign policy-wise these days, which says a lot, but you should be able to tell your friends from your enemies fundamentally. Um and these are obvious acts of war, as Amber noted, the you know, keeping shipping lanes, protecting shipping lanes and protecting trade and the the freedom of the seas is the most basic obligation. Um not only of America, but before that, right? The British, before that, the Dutch, um, whoever whoever sort of controls and has the uh, the power to protect those kinds of shipping lanes um, has had the responsibility of of doing so for the world, whether whether you like it or not. Um, so this is this is a very very basic foreign policy problem. In some sense, it's the the simplest of the foreign policy problems, um, and the fact that we can't effectively deal with this, of course, is one more invitation to much more serious opponents to, to try to move in against the United States. Um, regarding Donald Trump's foreign policy, I think there is a very real, and um, maybe we'll, you know, I think over the years on this podcast, I've gotten to some of my criticisms of Donald Trump, but uh, I, I think there is a very substantial chance that if Donald Trump, in fact, uh, you know, won the 2020 election and was installed as president, both of those things uh, uncertain at this point, um, I, I I think uh, there's a very good chance that we would neither have had uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uh, nor the October 7th attacks in Israel, um, the two major foreign policy crises under the Biden administration. Of course, you know, hindsight's 2020 and um, speculation is, is necessarily exactly that. But um, I, I think there is a good chance and that the... the it's it's hard to overstate. I mean, uh, Putin started amassing his troops on the borders several weeks, or I think 10 days or 14 days after the U.S. withdrew so uh, disastrously from, from Afghanistan, after we proved that we couldn't even execute a very basic withdrawal op- operation that, that the um, – the ability both of the commander in chief and then of of the people, the top brass of the Pentagon to even execute any like sort of basic thing uh, was so low. And the fact that nobody was was punished, nobody resigned, you know, I, I keep coming back to this, but the only person who paid any consequences for that disaster, including the deaths of Americans, um, the only person who paid any, any consequences for that disaster was the l- lieutenant corporal who criticized the top brass, knowing that he would be court-martialed court for it, which indeed he was. He is still the only person who has paid any kind of consequence um, for that disaster that put out a, a giant signal to the world that the United States uh, is wholly incompetent, even in its military operations. Um, so, I mean, this is this has just been an incredibly dangerous period uh, for America, both domestically and foreign policy wise. And, you know, we'll see if that changes in 2024. But um, in the meantime, we're going to continue to deal with the volatility of the world if we're not willing to prove to the world that we will assert ourselves and our interests in a competent and and sane way. So I would just say the Biden administration's deterrence policy in the Middle East is working, but it's deterring our friends and it is protecting our worst adversaries. So when we talk about the Houthis, to to a similar extent, though, probably maybe a slightly lesser degree when it comes to Hamas or any number of other groups. We're talking about Iran. Iran provides intelligence. Iran provides weaponry. Iran provides the entire playbook for the Houthis to help Iran project power, namely against the Saudis and others as well. Iran has done everything it can to prevent Israel from annihilating Hezbollah to its north. And consequently, there are tens of thousands of Israelis who have been displaced from their homes for weeks on end due to the threat of Hezbollah. And it's the Biden administration that is effectively responsible for keeping those people displaced. I think we should say that openly and honestly. 
The, the bottom line is that nearly every single policy in the region has been about protecting an effort to ultimately get to another disastrous nuclear deal with Iran, which, by the way, probably the proceeds from the first one are probably responsible for underwriting much underwriting much of the mayhem and chaos and bloodshed that we're seeing today, because at the end of the day, this is all about cozying up to and seeking to appease Iran. We had, as we've talked about before, unenforced oil sanctions to the tune of billions of dollars to Iran, the unfreezing of the funds plus hostage exchanges with Iran. Obviously, as we've also discussed before, the compromise within the Biden administration of pro-Iranian officials, likely starting with Rob Malley and others that he brought into the administration. So when we look at the fact that there have been dozens and dozens of attacks on the U.S., our allies, our interests in the region. By the way, there was also an IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, ballistic missile strike right near uh, U.S. diplomatic facilities in Iraq, uh, in Erbil, before we came uh, to do this podcast today. All of the strikes in the region and all of the intensification and now the seas that are under siege by Iran's proxies, this is all the poisonous fruit of the Biden administration's policy, which was to aid, abet, enable, empower Iran at the cost of our advers of our friends and at the cost of our own interests. And it's put the lives of our troops in harm's way. And it's not just these two soldiers lost at sea or sailors lost at sea, rather, uh, but it's all U.S. forces in the region on top of our diplomatic personnel and then on top of our allies and partners in the region as well. It's absolutely disastrous, it's treacherous, and it should be called out as such. All right, um, for our final topic today, we have Inez talking about how the right should be thinking about Martin Luther King. If, if you're uh, very online, you may have caught this this discussion um, on, on X over the weekend. Um, about over Martin Luther King Day Jr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day uh, in in the United States, where we have a three day weekend. Um, actually, hilariously enough, I, I was traveling to Canada for a friend's wedding, and um, on the way there, they asked one of the the conductors very confusedly asked me on Monday, "Is, is it a holiday in the United States?" Um, so yes, uh, yes, it is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and um, I think it's it's probably Charlie Kirk who launched that kind of discussion into the mainstream. Uh, by doing a show and a tweet about the the radicalism, the very real radicalism of Martin Luther King, um, the, his views on race outside of a few snatches from a few speeches um, that that have uh, made him into the American icon that he currently uh, is. That being said, so there's this whole fight on the right, uh, one side saying um, this is this is a waste of time. Uh, People know Martin Luther King for his ideas about um, choosing to uh, judge people by the content of their character rather than the the color of their skin, about color blindness, uh, about an appeal to uh, the the deeper American project and the process towards which um, we might we might arrive at a more perfect union, right? Um, so. There, there, and I think anyway. I'm genuinely conflicted about this. I'm just going to lay out the the couple sides and then um, bring in the rest of you, and, and hopefully we can have an interesting discussion about this. Um, but there have been over over the last, let's say, six months or so, there has been um, there have been a lot of voices on the right that have uh, said that that the kind of uh, myth of Martin Luther King uh, that that the right currently participates in uh, that that it has not been a good thing for the right uh, that it has allowed the left to 
rightly point out the fact that uh, Martin Luther King's uh, you know, communist economic views, his flirtations with the Communist Party, um, his more radical racial views. I mean, he did support things like reparations, uh, early uh, iterations of affirmative action, right? So um, this has allowed sort of the hard left to uh, to always say, well, but, but Martin Luther King, this figure that 80, 90% of Americans in polls uh, view very positively, uh, also did... Um, support a lot of the things that more radical iterations of racialist ideology like CRT, for example, in the modern era do support. So that was sort of the one side. Um, I think that the seminal essay here is by David Azarad, um, I think in Chronicles magazine, which we can drop in the show notes for you, uh, and why dismantling that myth of Martin Luther King uh, may be a project that the right wants to take on. On the other hand, um, I think there is a certain victory in the fact that we do remember Martin Luther King for a handful of lines about colorblindness, equality, and and the content of our character. Um, in some ways, that is a victory that out of his more radical views, his plagiarism, his philandering, right? Um, Americans don't know anything about that, but they do know a handful of lines from his speech and the fact that his movement was nonviolent, right? Um, and so in that sense, I think... It, this does go to the question of why, how a person gets enshrined in the American pantheon of heroes, right? Of historical heroes, something that we've talked about over and over and over again on this show with regards to the left coming after the symbols and the people uh, that have made it into that pantheon and calling them, you know, evil, racist, you know, uh, not worth honoring, right? Um, and and the right has always made the the answer: we're not honoring Thomas Jefferson because he owned slaves. Right? We honor Thomas Jefferson because of the contributions that he made to this country, including writing most of the Declaration of Independence um, and starting UVA and all the things that he wanted to put uh, on his tombstone, like the uh, Declaration of Rights in Virginia. Right, So we honor him for those reasons, not for every mistake he's ever made in his life. Right. Um, similarly, one could say we honor Martin Luther King for these contributions that he has made to American life that have survived these phrases, these, um, you know, sort of idealistic, uh, uh, very uh, beautiful phrases about uh, equality in American life. And that is is what he is known for. All his other views, in some sense, are uh, irrelevant or besides the point as to why we honor Martin Luther King. Um, so that that's sort of, maybe I'm more in that camp, uh, but I can see the point of, of the people who are bringing are, are making the opposite argument, including uh, somebody you, you hear on here quite a bit, Jeremy Carl. Um, so I, I can see the point that they're trying to make. I'm not convinced it's the way forward. Maybe some of you guys are. I'll just make one more um, remark about this. To the extent that this is connected to the legacy of the Civil Rights Act, um, I think it is a good thing that you have mainstream conservatives like Charlie Kirk who are willing to open some of these questions, because one thing that is very clear to me um, is that reforming the Civil Rights Act is going to have to be part, if, if there is any victory to be had for the right long term, reforming the Civil Rights Act is going to have to be part of it. And there are so many people who are still afraid to even talk about the idea of reforming the Civil Rights Act exactly because of the mythos around it. Now, I happen to think on policy questions that the 90s revisions to the Civil Rights Act are actually much more important than the 64 Act and that there's, I don't really buy the age of uh, in entitlement thesis, the Christopher Caldwell thesis, that it's a direct line from 1964 to CRT. Um, that being said, I think the fact that we're having this discussion about Martin Luther King, even though I think I find myself 
I guess, more in the moderate camp about what he means to Americans ultimately and what it would mean to to sort of reopen the or, or mythologizing of Martin Luther King. Um, ultimately, I think it's a good thing that Republicans are getting bolder about opening some of these questions of race, because I don't think a lot of our legal problems uh, and incentives built into the legal system are solvable until the right is willing to have those conversations about race openly. So to that extent, I think this is a good thing that there are more people comfortable reopening questions like this publicly and in the mainstream. That being said, I think this particular uh, this particular crusade is not one that I'm convinced has a lot of upside for the right, but maybe you guys disagree. Um, yeah, uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one. Um, first off, I mean, okay, Martin Luther King was a philanderer, but many of the people criticizing him for that support Donald Trump, who is also a philanderer. Like, I don't think it's, you know, I think Inez, you're absolutely right that it's sort of like we, we celebrate people for their contributions, not for their personal failings. Um, I think in particular, the problem with going hard after the Civil Rights Act and, and specifically the 1964 Civil Rights Act is that we did actually have legal apartheid in this country, in the South. Um, that was really pretty appalling and, and truly did demand a federal remedy uh, in terms of like, I mean, I've told a Lyndon Johnson story about how, you know, he learned to his chagrin that his black driver had to drive an hour off the road um, in order to find a place to sleep at night when he was driving his car back to Texas. So things like that. I mean, it was just an appalling situation that did, in fact, demand a federal remedy. Um, that said, I think, you know, obviously the the way the Civil Rights Act is currently interpreted needs to be changed. And and it's not clear that Martin Luther King would be on the right side of history now, right? That he would be, that his positions on things like CRT would be correct now. Um, but that doesn't mean he was wrong then about the nastiness of Jim Crow and the need for federal legislation to remedy it. Yeah, I feel sort of equally torn on this one, as you all are, um, for all of the reasons mentioned before. Um, I, I think in terms of what we learn in school about MLK Jr., um, generally those principles are good. Um, there's a lot about him that was bad that we don't learn about in school. And I guess the question is, do you want to risk um, undermining the good principles that we learn about for the sake of tearing down um, this sort of icon of the left. And to me, I'm not sure that the risk-reward payoff is is quite right. I don't love the idea of sides in political debates trying to drape themselves in the mantle of great people one way or the other, because obviously... Human beings have uh, massive complexity. And, you know, at least for me, it's sort of you look to the good and the highest aspirations in people and their contributions, and then you try and dispense with the bad, and you, but you kind of weigh them against each other. And that's how you come to your own judgment about it. Um, I, I do think uh, when it comes to King, the right way to look at this is again, you look at what were kind of the overarching contributions and the content of character over color of skin maybe trumps all else in terms of the imagination of people today beyond obviously the leadership in the civil rights movement and the nonviolent tactics used uh, versus obviously all the demerits on the personal side, plagiarism, political ideology and beyond. But human beings are complex. You have to judge them on their own merits, good and bad. And then 
also based upon the time at which they were alive and the conditions they were met with. And I think that is the right way to judge any and all historical figures. You know, whether we then say they're good or bad, or this is why this person should be held up at this particular time or not, uh, we're all obviously going to have our own opinions on that. I, I do feel, though, that where today is left is, if the anti-cultural revolution, I've said this before, continues at the pace it had been, at the clip it had been traveling at, and and obviously it does appear that maybe um, the kind of wokeism as a movement as a whole has maybe slowed down, decelerated to some extent. I always felt that ultimately you would have uh, MLK statues toppled and the streets renamed because he wasn't down enough with the modern uh, interpretation of uh, social justice, so-called wokeism, CRT, et cetera. Um, to that end, one thing that I found interesting and in just seeing obviously the myriad posts on social media yesterday and something that is another black mark for King among leftists, uh, Martin Kramer tweeted a quote from Edward Said, who we've talked about before about Martin Luther King Jr. And he said, quote, I was very soon turned off by MLK, Martin Luther King, who revealed himself to be a tremendous Zionist and who always used to speak very warmly in support of Israel, particularly in 67 after the war. And King is quoted himself as saying uh, when approached by a student who had attacked Zionism, that he reportedly responded, quote, when people criticize Zionists, they mean Jews. You're talking anti-Semitism. And uh, this, again, I think sort of reflects the dichotomy in the left historically and then today also, uh, and why another reason that the left would turn on him uh, in its modern incarnation versus where it would have been uh, back then. Last but not least, also, I'd be re remiss if I didn't know it, and if you haven't seen it, check out the FBI's tweet celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Uh, the community note on that tweet is fantastic. Uh, the community note. So, th so the tweet says, you know, this MLK Day, the FBI honors one of the most prominent leaders of the civil rights movement and reaffirms its commitment to Dr. King's legacy of fairness and equal justice for all. And then if you look at the note, it says the FBI engaged in surveillance of King, attempted to discredit him and use manipulation tactics to influence him to stop organizing. King's family believed the FBI was responsible for his death. So this is another huge victory, big W for community notes. All right, with that, uh, let's do some final thoughts. Um, I, I can I can do mine first, just to continue on the Martin Luther King discussion. Um, I think the harshest evaluations of Martin Luther King um, and his radicalism and, and some of his political views and then of course of his personal life do miss the the role of christianity uh in in his thought um and in, in his political understanding i think that's in part because of the way he's taught i mean to to amber's point i think it is worth examining why it is that martin luther king is probably the most uniting uh historical figure of America, um, I think that's an interesting phenomenon, right? Because in his own time, he was definitely not viewed with that kind of universal admiration. And it's true that we've flattened, uh, flattened him very, very much uh, in in building the myth of, of Martin Luther King. We've we've left out a lot. Um, but one of the things that we've left out, I think, is is uh, 
the role of his deep Christianity and and the uh, role in Christianity, role of Christianity and the appeals that he was making to his fellow Americans uh, in, in as part of the movement um, for the Civil Rights Act, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's complicated, but I, I ultimately, I think uh, two things simultaneously about this. One, um, I, I do think the myth of Martin Luther King is, is in some ways a good thing, a very American thing, um, and, and perhaps something not worth risking. Uh, on the other hand, as I said, I, I think this is, if this is just an indication of the fact that there are more mainstream Republicans who are willing to take on uh, especially the changes to the Civil Rights Act that have been made in intervening years. I mean, starting with the courts in the 70s, but then unfortunately put into legislation in the 90s. I, I think if this makes Republicans bolder about talking about some of those issues, which are really central um, to a lot of what we call wokeness, it's, it's, not, it's not an accident that we had the first wave of political correctness quote unquote, uh, in, in the nineties. Um, that's when a lot of the sensitivity training started the entire, what we now call the DEI industry, right. Of, of all of these, these trainings, the diversity trainings and stuff, all of that started for the most part, uh, in the nineties. And that's because we took all the, I'm not going to get into the legal nitty gritty of it. Gail Harriet is, is I think the best person to read on this. Um, but we made it massively, we made grievance mongering massively lucrative, uh, in, in the private sector. And we set all of the legal incentives uh, for private businesses uh, to crack down on anything considered even mildly or remotely offensive uh, in, in the public space, in the workspace, and then ultimately even in private life. Um, that Those incentives came from the modifications to the Civil Rights Act made in the 90s. They are now codified in law um, and have been for four decades. Uh, and so to the extent that Republicans see this as not purely, it is, of course, a culture war question. It is, of course, a cultural question. Um, but it is it is ultimately linked to incentives provided for in law. And if Republicans are too afraid to say Civil Rights Act and the fact in the context of there might might have um, potentially having problems uh, associated with the Civil Rights Act, if they're not willing to say those words, then the problem is never going to be solved. So to that extent, I think this is hopeful. I'll go ahead and jump in next with a completely different topic from anything we talked about today. Um, it's a cultural trend that I've sort of been keeping my eye on, and it's been dubbed Sephora Kids. And for those unfamiliar, Sephora is a makeup and skincare retailer. And apparently a lot of young children, uh, young women between the ages of nine and 14 years old have started swarming Sephora stores looking for expensive makeup and skincare products. And um, what's, I think, very disturbing about this is that specifically the skincare products that these kids are really interested in are things that have very harsh active ingredients like retinol and tretinoin that frankly are, are very damaging for young skin. Um, their skin's not capable of, of handling it and it'll actually damage their skin barrier. And I think this is indicative of a larger trend of society trying to avoid aging at all costs. And the irony is that they actually end up aging faster and destroying the innocence of childhood um, and youth. I mean, we have buckle fat removal as the hot new plastic surgery item. Um, we have these ginormous lip fillers and facelifts and um, uh, eyebrow, eyebrow lifts and all of these other procedures that um, might 
look okay in moderation, but by the time you get to someone like Madonna, who is, uh, who has been doing these her entire life, um, she looks just downright scary. And we're seeing that Madonna effect happen to younger and younger women as they become addicted to these cosmetic procedures. Um, and uh, in part, I think it's a indictment of, of humanity fighting against nature um, so aggressively that they end up just hurting themselves, but also the effect of constantly seeing yourself on camera all day, every day, whether it's on Zoom meetings like this or um, the constant uh, FaceTime or Snapchat, um, everything is done through a filter nowadays. Um, you're also constantly on social media as a young woman, seeing other people who are aggressively cosmetic procedured and filtered into oblivion. And um, so I think it's just incredibly worrying that we have exposed all of these young women to um, constant cameras and, and digital life without thinking about the consequences. Sephora Kids sounds funny and it sounds cute. And of course, you know, young women like to um, uh, uh, follow the example of their mothers and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but if we're getting to the point where young girls want to spend $70 on an anti-aging serum that's going to destroy their skin because they constantly see women looking a certain way and are desperate to avoid aging. We have to ask ourselves where the heck we went wrong and what role this plays as well into the drastic decline of mental health among young women in our country. And um, it, I, as someone who plans on having kids, hopefully in the next few years, God willing, um, this whole uh, landscape right now for young people really scares me. On an entirely different and very brief note, uh, we just passed just over 100 days since the October 7th Hamas attack. There's still uh, reportedly six Americans who remain held in hostage. And uh, I pointed this out on social media over the weekend. You know, there's no tickers on television counting the number of days these Americans have been held. This is a massive scandal. The fact that the politics, of course, override the actual concern for these Americans who are being held by jihadist monsters, I think speaks volumes. You remember, of course, we had a similar phenomenon with uh, the COVID count trackers of the sick and the dead, and it just disappeared immediately, essentially, after Joe Biden assumed the office. Uh, the same sort of dynamic is at play now. Uh, it's absolutely shameful and this should be known as Joe Biden's hostage crisis, not out of politics, but on the merits, because this, again, is the direct poisonous fruit of a policy that was about ultimately aiding, abetting and enabling Iran and all of its proxies, including Hamas, while putting the screws to our allies, namely including Israel. Um, yeah, one thought. I mean, I think. I, I just a random thought about really appreciating something about the British system a little more and general parliamentary system is they have something called prime minister's questions where the leader of the country has to be willing to get up and stand up and take questions about his policies every day on a week from his most severe adversaries. We don't have that. And now it apparently we don't even have presidential debates where the, you know, the leading candidates don't even really have to take questions from anybody. Um, I can't help but think this is not going to be good for our governance going forward. Nobody of the age of either Biden or Trump would be able to make it in British politics because they wouldn't be able to handle something like prime minister's questions and retain their position. 
Um, and I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but I, I, I cannot say I, I do not like the world where we have competing 80 year olds uh, being able to be successful and, and basically running entirely almost on name recognition um, rather than their ability to actually demonstrate competence. So, but well, with that, um, I think we're come to the end of the day. So on behalf of Inez, Ben and Amber, thanks for tuning in. Um, I'm Will Chamberlain. See you at the next NACMON squad.